Okay, so Jude uh, 24 and 25 today. That's, let me read it. And then uh, don't, don't by muscle memory get up and leave, okay? Because I know that's probably <laughs> what's going to happen. Um, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And you're, you've probably heard that about a hundred times if you've been here a couple years. Um, it, is, uh, it is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, actually, because it, it's one of those ones that I've, I've read, just personally, I've read it so much, it's just, it's memorized. I mean, just because of the sheer number of times I've read it. And I can't tell you how many times these words come to my mind throughout different seasons. Um, and just the reminder that, that it is for us. But I think to, to understand these words uh, the best we can, we, we do need to understand them in the context that they were written. They're not just isolated words. They're, they're a part of a, of a bigger message that Jude is writing. He, he writes this letter. Jude is one of the shortest letters in the New Testament. It's only about a page and a quarter in my, in my written Bible here. And it's a very short uh, book or, or letter. And uh, yet it's a, it's a good one. It's an important one. It's not one that I've ever preached, um, at least not at this point. I think we, we have maybe at some point preached through Jude years and years ago, but I don't think I did it. I think Lucas, when he was here, did this. Um, but anyways, it is a, it's a great letter. And to understand and appreciate how this thing concludes with the words I just read, I think we, we need to best look at the overall message. And to do that, we don't have to look at every word in it. We can really get the snapshot of what Jude's saying and I think get, it, get our appreciation for these, these words of the benediction by just looking at the first opening paragraph of the body of the letter after the introduction and the greeting and then the last paragraph before the benediction. And these two paragraphs kind of put together uh, give us a sense of what Jude is teaching. And so he, here's, here's what it says. We'll start in verse three and look at verse uh, three and four first, and then we'll skip down to verse 17 and look at uh, verse, uh, down to verse 23. But it says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in, unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ." So the first, first paragraph here before we get down to the last paragraph is, is basically the introduction and saying why Jude writes the letter. Why is he writing this letter at this time? And the answer is spelled out in black and white. He wanted to write a letter to this group of Christians about the common salvation that they have. In other words, he wanted to write a letter that was just an encouragement, building them up, talking about the positive things in that they have in common through Christ. But something happened in this church that he found it necessary 
where he couldn't just write this encouraging letter, which is, what, which is what he was hoping to do, but he really had to write a letter to appeal to them, to, to in some ways convict them that, that there is a fight for the faith that needs to be had in this church and among these believers. And the reason for that is verse four, because there were certain people who had crept into this church unnoticed. They kind of covertly got in there and started to lead people away from the true faith. And they started to deceive people through false teaching. This was a very common thing in the first century churches. Pretty much all of Paul's letters address this on some level or another. Uh, Peter does and Jude. I mean, you can't really find a whole lot of Bible uh, books of the New Testament that don't address the issue of false teaching in the church. And I think that was obviously a problem then. I think it's still to some degree a problem now. But the point here is that this, this letter was written because there were people perverting the grace of God. They, they were making a mess of this, this beautiful doctrine of God's grace. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's why he writes the letter. Then, if you get down to verse 17, we see how he wraps it up. <coughs> okay, here we go. It says, but, if you, uh, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the holy apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in the, your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by sin. So putting these two paragraphs together and then, you know, obviously he, he, defend, he basically is explaining his issue throughout the main body of the letter but looking at these two paragraphs together, it's, it's clear what he's saying. He's saying that we need to contend for the faith, defend the true faith of, of Jesus Christ as passed down in the scriptures, and we need to guard our own hearts and persevere. Right? He, he says we have to remember what the apostles of Jesus Christ told us. Verse 18, they told us that in the last times there will be scoffers, who follow their own ungodly passions. In other words, there's always going to be trouble in this world and there's always going to be false teachers in this world. But what we need to be concerned about is what he says in verse 21. Beloved, build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. Let me take a drink here. One second. <coughs> so essentially what he's saying is, is this, that we have to stick with it, stay in the faith, continue to believe in the Lord Jesus and follow through to the end. Now, I don't know <coughs> how that lands on you or where, where you, how you feel about that, especially that phrase, 
Keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That phrase really, uh, it, it, it just strikes me as like impossible, right? Because because we think about this, think about how um, fickle we tend to be, right? And how our hearts can just be swayed so easily one way or the other. How uh, we have all kinds of things that, that pull at us and temptations that lead us astray and all of these things. If we're honest people about our, ourselves, we know we're not perfect and we haven't figured this all out. <coughs> but what we have is this call to keep ourselves in the love of God. So, so I kind of am left thinking to myself, well, how are we to do that? How, how can I possibly pull that off? I have, a, I have, I think, a biblical understanding of my sinfulness. I think I have a biblical understanding of, of my own foolishness, and, and hopefully you do too. And so that does leave the, the burden of, well, how? How could I possibly do what the Bible says here and keep myself in the love of God? Well, and I think that that, understanding that, is what gives us the, the great, message of this benediction because he says verse 24 now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy Jude's answer to the question if I was to ask him like well how exactly am I supposed to keep myself in the love of God his answer is you can't but God can. Our, our hope is not in our ability to sur- survive this Christian life unscathed. Our, our hope is placed not in us, but in him who is able. That's where we have to bank our lives. It's in his ability to keep us and present us before himself. And that's really the, the heart of this benediction. It is to remind us as a blessing over us as we leave the service. It is meant to be a blessing to our hearts to go, I'm going to enter into a, a whole wide world of, of uh, frustration and struggles and difficulties and sins and temptations and all the things that we all deal with every single day. Uh, and, and we are entering into that world with the blessing of Jesus saying to us, you don't have the strength to get yourself through to the end, but God does. And he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence with great joy. That's the focal point of this benediction, that we have no ability in ourselves, but God has all the ability to do it on our behalf and for us. So let's unpack this. Let's just take these two verses and work through them. Um, It says, now, to him who is able. And I want to stop there because I I think that word able can maybe trip us up a little bit. I think in some ways we hear that word able and we think, okay, well, he's got the ability, but does that imply his willingness to do it? Right? It's it's sort of like the the silly example I, I could think of is if somebody told you, I could run a mile in four minutes. 
which I think is very hard to do. I don't know. I've never tried to run a mile, so I don't. I couldn't tell you. But um, I, I think it's difficult. I think the fastest is I don't know, three and a half or three and a three quarter minute or something like that. It's very. That's really fast. So if somebody said four minutes, I can run a mile. You would say, "Well, prove that. I want to see you do that." And if they get, well, you know, I didn't sleep well last night, or I got kind of a bum knee right now, or what, whatever, they make some excuse, you're going to go, I mean, you say you're able to do this, but you're not willing to actually come through with it. So I don't really believe you. Right? And I think sometimes we can hear that word and go, well, God is able to do this, but is he actually going to? And what I want to say here is th- this, that Jude is not using able in that way. He's not saying, yeah, God could do this, but he's not really willing to, or he's just dangling this in front of you, but he's going to pull it away at the last second. No, he's giving us this assurance that what God is able to do, he will accomplish for us in Jesus Christ. So what is God able to do? There's two things. The first is to keep you from stumbling to keep you from stumbling. And, and here's what that word keep means. It means to guard or to protect. It's to, to put his arms around us and keep us from falling down. Our hope here is, is uh, not in our ability to finish the race uh, in our own strength, to run this marathon of the Christian life without any hiccups. No, our hope is in God's ability to be with us and to keep us from ultimately falling down to not get back up. He guards us to the end. He keeps us all the way till we make it into glory. That is great news because it takes such a weight off of ourselves. And that, that's, not, that's not to say, I want to be careful here, right? I don't, I'm not saying that we have no role to play in our sanctification or our growth in Christ, which is what sanctification means. We do have a role to play. We, we are called to, to continue to walk with him and uh, continue to draw closer to him and to, to renounce the things that, that uh, keep us from it. Of course, that's all true. But we do all of that and we have a assurance that as we do all of that, we are able to carry on because he is actually the one who is keeping us from stumbling. He keeps us from stumbling all the way to the very end. This is what Jesus himself tells us he does for us. In in John chapter 10, 27 through 30, Jesus says this. Uh, he, He tells us, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So hearing those words from Jesus, he's using the analogy of a sheep, of sheep and shepherd. He's talking in that same passage about how he's the good shepherd and what he's saying is, is that those who believe in him, follow him, are his sheep. And they, we hear his voice. We know who he is. We follow him. But, but he's the one, he says, who gives us eternal life. I give them eternal life. 
and they will never perish. You will never fall to the point of being completely removed. No one snatches them out of my hand. He says, my father, the father, God, the father is given them, given us to Jesus and he is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch us out of the father's hand. So we don't need to walk through life believing that God's love is fickle or, or shaking or changing in any way. God secures us. If we truly believe in him, give our hearts to him in faith, then we have the assurance of the, go- of the gospels that we will never be lost. He will keep us from stumbling in Jude's words. We, we will be carried through to the end because Jesus is there to hold us and keep us, to guard us, protect us. Jesus does this for us. He does this for us. And and we are being given the assurance of it. And further, the apostle Peter, uh, in his letter, his first letter, goes here too. And he kind of of expands a bit on what Jesus is saying there in John 10. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the, Lord, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? We've been born again to something, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. More precious, uh, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You hear what Peter's saying? He's assuring people who are suffering, much like us, in so many various trials, yet what we have in Christ is an inheritance that is secure, it is kept in heaven for us, it is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is unfading. And more than that, we are guarded, it says, by him. That is the heart of of this idea of being kept for Jesus, that he is able to keep us from stumbling. The second thing we see in this first verse is that he is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God presents us blameless before his presence with great joy. What does that mean? Well, it means that as God carries us through to the end, 
as he guards us and protects us in this marathon of the Christian life, despite all the trials and difficulties and false teachings that may be out there that we're able to, to avoid and run from or, or co- contradict or whatever else, all of this work that God does to guard us ultimately gets us to the end, which is that we are presented to him in perfect, blameless righteousness. This is getting to what, what we would call, what theologians have always called, imputed righteousness. Righteousness that isn't in us by nature, because by nature we are children of wrath, as Ephesians 2 says. We don't have righteousness within us, but to stand before a perfect God, we need to be perfectly righteous. So what's, what's the issue there? How do we fix that issue? Well, it's Jesus that fixes that issue by giving us his righteousness. He gives to you righteousness that is not ours, but his And he applies it to you so that at the end of all things, when we are before God the Father, we will stand there in absolute, perfect, blameless righteousness before his presence. He gets us there. This this is what the Apostle Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, which is an incredible verse. It, It says, that here, here's what it says. Um, for our sake, he, that, that is the father in heaven, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin. That's just crazy to think of right there. But look, God made Jesus to be sin. Though he knew no sin, he was a sinless man all the way. But on the cross, the sin of every human heart that would come to him in faith is placed upon him. He takes the identity of sin upon himself as he dies on the cross. So that, here's why he did this for us, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Our our Jesus dies on a cross to become our sin and take the punishment that that sin deserves before the holy God. And in exchange, as Martin Luther says, this is a great exchange. He he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And it's because of God's work through Christ on the cross that we can then be presented before his presence in the glory of his presence, blameless, with great joy. We, we have this amazing reality as we believe in Jesus. We have no sin held against us because Jesus took every sin off of us. And he became sin for us. And he paid the wrath that that sin deserved so that you and I would never have to bear that, that wrath. This is what we, the Bible refers to as Justification which is to say that we have been declared righteous through the merits of Jesus Christ. We're not righteous because we're inherently righteous. We're not sinless. But we have a God who makes us and brings us to himself and presents us to to the Father in blameless righteousness. Now, that's the first verse of this benediction. The second is this, to the only God, our Savior. 
Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. So the logical progression here is that because of God's ability through Christ to keep us in him, in himself, to keep us saved, and to ultimately get us to the very end, blameless before his presence, that work of God should lead us to hearts that respond to him in worship. Jude here gives us several descriptions of God to explain to us why God is worthy of our praise. He first begins with, to the only God. This stresses the uniqueness of God, that there is only one. We don't have this world, which many people have, have thought, thought throughout history that we do, have this world which is made by all of these different competing gods. No, the Bible clearly teaches us this, that there is one God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. We have one God in this universe. He is the only God. He is unique. He stands alone. There is no one like him. No other God compares to him. And all those gods that we try to compare to the true God are fake anyways. He is the only God that stresses his absolute uniqueness, which reaffirms, again, what the Old Testament teaches in Deuteronomy 6. We also see here that he is our Savior, that this God who uh, is the only God is the God who rescues sinners from their sin. He rescues us and he saves us from eternal destruction. He saves us from the wrath of God. He brings us to himself and again presents us to himself blameless as we trust in him. He, he then says that this is through Jesus Christ our Lord the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's the point. We can only come to the true God, the only God, by coming to him through Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other way. We have to come to God through Jesus. And there's a lot of areas in which we can, you know, be united or agree with people of other faiths, but there has to be a line drawn somewhere. Right? And the, the point is, is that while we can pursue goodwill and, and common good with other people of other faiths, if, if we believe the Bible, we have to believe that there is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. It is exclusionary, but it is so inclusive because he welcomes all to come to him. He welcomes everyone, but he is the only way. There's no other way. Then we, we see this, that he concludes with this kind of string of words that show us more and more of the blessing we get from God. He says, to our only God, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Glory refers to the visible manifestation of, of God's character, this is communicated through his name in Exodus in the Old Testament, but we're told by Hebrews 1 and John 1.14 that this ultimately culminates the glory of God, the visible manifestation of God's character is communicated in Jesus Christ. 
we see glory, we see majesty. This is a state of greatness or preeminence. In other words, what his majesty points us to is that God is greater than us and infinitely better than us. And who wouldn't want to worship a God? What kind of God would we be worshiping if, it, if he wasn't better than us in every possible way? We'd just be worshiping versions of ourselves. Dominion highlights God's sovereign rule over the universe as the rightful king. There is authority that is tied to dominion, which refers to God's power to exercise this rule over creation. There is nothing in all of the universe in which God is not in control of. And he sits on a throne and he uses his enemies as his footstool. This is the picture of of our God through Christ that we have in the scriptures. There is dominion and authority. This is the, the kingliness of God, that he is the true king over not just a nation. I don't know if you woke up early like I did to watch the king coronated in England, but I did and I enjoyed that very much. But King Charles is not Jesus, obviously. We all know that. But but Jesus has dominion, not over just some tiny little island in Europe, but over all the world. And he's the true God that we, and the true king that we submit to. And so as we come to him, we know that this glory, majesty, dominion, and authority is before all time, meaning from eternity past, and now, meaning right here in our day, and forever, meaning forever right? We have this God who is this. He has always been these things. He is these things now, and he will always be these things for us. And so as we come to him, who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us to himself, we come as worshipers humbly before him. And we sing to him, and we respond to him, and we believe in him, and we obey him, because he is the God who is worthy of all things. I think a great picture of this is, is just a couple pages down in, in the Bible from Jude. It's in Revelation 5. This is a picture of John's uh, vision of the future, and he's given a glimpse of eternity in heaven where all people from all tribes and tongues and languages are worshiping Jesus around the throne. And what's so crazy to think about in this is as we read these words, we are actually there even though we're not there right now, right? In our, in our time space issue here. But this will be where we stand before him. In verse nine, it says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard, these are John's words, I heard around the throne and the living creature and the elders and the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, 
to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That is where all of this goes with our hearts being united so perfectly to Jesus and joyfully giving him all praise and, and, and expressing verbally the honor he is so deserving of. The good news is, is that we don't have to wait for that day, though that will be the perfect day that we stand before him in, in, in his presence. But really what we do every day as Christians is we practice that. We practice it. We, we come to church week, week to week. We sing his, his praise. We, we lift up our voices to who he is. We offer prayers to him. We open his word and listen to it. These are all acts of worship that we participate in as his people because he is worthy of it. And, and he, is, he is worthy just on the nature of who he is. But how much better is it that this God who is so worthy of all these things would keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before his presence with great joy. That's, that's a heck of a deal. Because God is God whether we love him or not, but he loves us so much that he would do these things for us. Let's worship him through that. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, Lord God, we, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. You are an incredible God. And it is your love for us through your son Jesus that we are so humbled by. And we pray that as we come to you now, as we sing to you as a congregation, as we partake of the, the, the supper that you have instituted for us, as we draw our hearts and minds to you and your work for us, would you meet us here and would you help our hearts to be more joyful worshipers than we could ever be on our own. We pray for your help in these things and we love you because you first loved us. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.